Welcome to Heart Yoga Radio. It's the 14th of November 2021. It's a Sunday and the COP26 International Conference on Climate Change, which was held at Glasgow, seems to have wound up uh, yesterday, uh, having run a little over time. And what I want to do in this podcast is give an initial reaction to the uh, the news that I've heard. I have been looking at quite a wide variety of news outlets and I've even watched the proceedings uh, live online uh, through the United Nations own channel. Um, I would include in that looking at mainstream media, particularly at their websites, uh, listening to uh, the BBC radio outletting, uh, including the the World Service, which often gives you a slightly different slant on things. This is, however, a, an initial impression, and at a later date, hopefully not too far off from now, uh, Anna and myself will look at the documentation that gets published, the official documentation, and we'll take a, a, a more fine-grained look at what's gone down at the COP26. Now, the first thing that should jump out at you, if, if you've had your ear to the ground, even if only slightly, is that on the one hand, there are people talking this event up and saying it's positive or very positive and, and uh, many good moves have been made in the right direction. And on the other hand, people who are really shocked, really despondent, really depressed and don't have a good word to say for the proceedings and for what has concluded and for what's gone on. Now, as the proceedings were coming to an end, the president of the meeting, a British government minister, a Conservative politician, Alok Sharma, would actually seem quite tearful because at the very last minute, India and probably China decided they wanted to change the, the wording uh, around the issue of coal. And the initial wording said coal will be phased out over a, a given period of time. The use of coal, the mining and burning of coal energy and industrial process and so on would be phased out and India insisted right at the last minute uh, under threat of scuppering the entire agreement that phased out needed to be changed for the words phased down so Alex Sharma runs around the room gets into a huddle with the US and uh, uh, Russia and and China and, and the, the the big wealthy countries, the G20 countries, and extracts an agreement and uh, also speaks to the, uh, the global south, the countries who are actually most at risk from severe disruption and loss of life from climate change. And, uh, and they conceded, apparently, so that the wording was changed right at the last minute, and he did seem disappointed by that. Didn't quite get what he wanted. Uh, later on, when he's been debriefed on, on news outlets later on, he's a bit more upbeat and he's talking it up. 
He's saying, for instance, that there are many good points in this, particularly vis-a-vis finance, vis-a-vis mitigation and so on. Now, I think he does have to talk it up. Just politically, you know, but he was visibly shaken by this last minute watering down of uh, an agreement that had been reached about coal. When he was talking up the, the the deal, later on, when he sort of composed himself, he said, well, at least coal was mentioned. No previous uh, document uh, from this conference, which is, is the 26th version of this conference, in none of the 25 of the conferences has any fossil fuel been mentioned by name, including coal. So he, he, he starts talking that up as a, a plus point, as a positive I mean, one is tempted here to be a bit exasperated with the attention to detail uh, or the attention to language, to works, to words. I mean, we're talking about changing one word here, you know. But of course, these are treaties or agreements, international agreements, and there are attempts to make them binding. So you can see why that happens. At the same time, you can see why Greta Thunberg is exasperated and talks about uh, this meeting just being a talking shop, you know, just blah, blah, blah. And you can see why many green activists are talking about uh, this whole business being greenwash. Now, I did come across one viewpoint that was perhaps a little bit of one and a little bit of the other. And I think it's worth reading to really capture both uh, sides of the way this conference can be viewed. Here we go, and this was in The Guardian. The headline says, Utter betrayal, civic society groups furious at the COP26 outcomes. Live update. 43 minutes ago, this came out. I'll just read you a little of it. Sir David King, a former chief scientific advisor to the UK government and current chair of the Climate Crisis Advisory Group, has responded to the final deal reached at the UN Climate Conference in Glasgow. Quote, There were real advances made in the agreement, follow on from COP21 in Paris 2015, adaptation, mitigation and finance were all strengthened, rules on carbon markets were approved, the importance of the protection, conservation and restoration of nature and ecosystems was recognised, although the phrase critical importance was removed. And the phase down not phase out of coal, was approved at the last minute. So that uh, sounds quite positive. And this is the line that Alok Sharma and various government officials are currently taking. They obviously want to paint this in a good light. Anyway, uh, Sir David King continues, but there was no real understanding in the agreement of the extreme nature of the crisis. How do we, the current generation, ensure a manageable future for humanity? The threat to all of us from the loss of polar summer sea ice over the Arctic Ocean is a clear signal of the disaster from rising sea level. Severe extreme weather events and high temperatures. But it was not addressed in any way. This was the meeting where the end of coal, oil and gas should have been set in place in an orderly, efficient and fair way. The power of the USA oil and gas lobby meant that the USA was unable once again to show clear leadership on this critical issue. 
So there you see the positives and the negatives. And you know, the guy's a scientific advisor and we'd expect a, uh, at least there'd be a fair chance that we'd get some semblance of uh, objectivity. Of course, one has to put the word objectivity in scare quotes. But we'd expect something from a source like this to be something at least we should pay attention to. Now, we do know that there were 500 delegates plus 500 and something delegates from the fossil fuel industry at this conference. And that is actually more delegates than the consortium of island nations sent to the conference. They sent 400 and something. These are uh, small countries in the Pacific, uh, for instance, island countries that 1.5 degrees increase is about all those countries will tolerate if they are to continue to exist at all. Apparently activists in those countries have got a, a slogan that they chant, 1.5 to stay alive, and apparently they've now started chanting 1.5 might stay alive. So the fossil fuel industry sends more delegates to this conference than the governments of the countries, the fairly poor countries in general, that stand to lose the most. Now that should be telling you something. George Monbiot was appearing all over the internet yesterday with a, a short video, a one-minute video that appears on Twitter. And Owen Jones uh, replayed it today as well on his live uh, broadcast. Mombio describes the conference as a fiasco. And the version of the document which he'd seen, because he was speaking just shortly prior to the end of the proceedings, he, he described the document a limp rag of a document. And he complains, and rightfully so, in my opinion, that there was no mention of the idea that fossil fuel should be kept in the ground after 2030. That wasn't even discussed. And uh, Monbiot claims that the scientists are saying that that is what needs to happen. All fossil fuels stay in the ground after 2030. It was nine years to phase them out. But it wasn't even mentioned. There was no discussion of it. Too much of a hot potato. And one would presume here that this is the power of the fossil fuel lobby. And if, like me, you've read extensively around the influence of big oil, big oil money, particularly around the Koch brothers, but also... Uh, with regard to the UK oil industry, which is extremely venerable, I mean, the UK oil company started out in oil way back in the early 20th century with the Anglo-Iranian company, which may even started before then. Uh, so there's this long history of uh, British capital being intensely involved in fossil fuels, obviously big coal, there's entire industrial revolution of this country was just off the back of coal and off Welsh steam coal. And coal-generated electricity as the industrial revolution proceeded. 
huge fossil fuel, fuel country. But I've uh, researched that recently th- through the work of Terry, uh, Terry McAllister, whose excellent book, Crude Britannia, is very, very well worth a read. Now, there was another author whose name escapes me, but it's a, it's a very readable book. It's a very poetic book in places because they, they went round the country visiting oil refineries, which most of which are now closed in the UK, and speaking to union people who'd, who'd worked on oil rigs, speaking to company directors, and speaking to a whole range of people and investigating communities which had depended on uh, uh, the big oil. And that is uh, a book that tells you about the massive influence of the UK oil industry. It's not just an American phenomenon. Obviously, everything happens at a much bigger scale in the US, and oil in the US has been big oil for a very long time. But if you look at this material, you'll be no doubt of the enormous influence and the the enormous wealth and energy that this industry can throw at getting its own way and can throw at the project of capturing governments. So this shouldn't surprise you. In fact, George Monbiot says that the conference seemed to have been designed to make it easy for the fossil fuel industry. Owen Jones also had another guest who was extremely interesting, a person called Kumi Naidu, who in the past had been an apparatchik for Greenpeace and I think currently works for Amnesty. It's obviously a NGO type waller and described himself as a climate activist and he spoke very intelligently about the, the conference. He mentions the, the disproportionate number of delegates from the oil industry at the conference. And he likens the, the way the conference basically protected the interests of the global north or of the developed countries, the G20. And he likened what has gone on there to, to vaccine apartheid, which is the state of affairs in which vaccines against COVID are not finding the way to the global south because Big Pharma, also an immensely influential corporate sector, uh, international corporate corporate sector, uh, wants its money for its patents and so forth. And it, it, the, the net result is a kind of vaccine apartheid. And the, the governments of the developed world are not being very helpful in making sure that people in the poorer parts of the world get vaccinated and our communities get some mitigation of the effects of the, the COVID-19 virus through mass vaccination. And I think he's right. I think there is a parallel there. Of course, the, the, the poor countries in the world will pay the biggest price. They'll pay the most brutal price, as uh, Kumi Naidu uh, described it. They pay the most brutal price. And he says, I quote, lives will be lost at scale. And the way things panned out, with not very much on offer to the poorer countries and to the island nations that will be flooded by even quite a small rise in sea level, many of them, to the way in which governments are owned by the fossil fuel industry. Somebody else there recognises that uh, with a, uh, a great deal of clarity. 
And in fact, Kermie Noidu goes so far as to say that everyone knows that anything over 1.5 degrees is basically going to wipe out with massive disruption and with loss of life many of the poorer island nations in the world and will have a, 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 a catastrophic impact on the global south. Everyone knows that. Russia knows it, China knows it, India knows it. The US knows it, Europe knows it, Canada knows it. And he claims that there has been a calculated decision not to save these people, that to let them go, to let them be written off. That's a very, very damning claim if it's true. He seemed like a trustworthy uh, actor to me, the guy did, and what he said makes sense, and it accorded with certainly with my own research into the influence of big oil. Now, as I say, this is this is initial. This is an initial look, and we'll we will go to the documents, and we will get into the weeds a little. So, there's one thing to say now. I'm going to keep this brief. One thing to say, and that is to ask the question we always ask: Well, what is to be done? You know, what is practical from here? What will work? What strategies do the climate movement, do the ecological movement, do the people's movements need to adopt here? And Kumi Naidu is, again, fairly in accord with our own ideas. And he says that it, the situation is so dire that what is needed is system redesign, system transformation. We can't tinker around the edges like this. That's why I certainly have my doubts about carbon trading and offset. I think all of these are going to be scams that allows the oil industry to continue. They've been gaming the system forever and they're very good at it. And it's probably not so wise to expect them to stop now. It makes uh, the point that there is an enormous appetite, particularly amongst young people, for redesign, system redesign, system transformation, revolution, you might say. And he does place a great deal of hope in young people. And uh, I think we have to, even though I do take the point that some of the young activists turn around and say, well, you, you know, we don't need your condescension, fuck you. <laughs> you know, I don't understand it. You know, my, my generation, I think, was full of good intentions way back there in the 60s, but maybe we got too stoned or took too many hallucinogens or whatever the, the thing was going on, but it got, it got sidetracked, you know. And now there's a modern uh, young generation that think all boomers are sort of like proto-fascist landlords or something, which, of course, isn't true, but you can understand why they would think that. And uh, I th think we thought as a generation... And many of us soar into these problems even way back then. I've known this was coming for 40 years, you know. And what did you do? You retreated to the allotment, you know, and li lived off potatoes and Brussels sprouts, you know. That was my personal solution, basically, because nobody would listen. You're just a crank in sandals and you need a haircut. So I understand that side of it as well. But he is, he is right. That's where the, the leadership is coming from. And why not? It's their future. So I think he's right. System redesign and transformation. But he said something also very interesting. And I think this needs to be seriously considered and strategised. 
and it needs to be done very intelligently. And that is this. We need to realise that, to quote Kumi Naidu, that infrastructure is a target. At the same time, there is a task. I think he's right about this again, even though I think we have to be careful about being too even-handed. But there is a task to win over those not with us. There are plenty, plenty of people floating on all this. And uh, I think the outright deniers, you, the real hardcore deniers, you won't get them. You won't get to them. They're in a cult. They've, they've been brainwashed. And remember that the Cokes have spent billions over 40 years to arrive at a position where 40, 50% of the American population think that climate change is a hoax. There are some people within that group that are irredeemable, but there are plenty who can be persuaded. The arguments need to be put, they need to be put clearly, they need to be shown to be unimpeachable, where they are, and shown to be equivocal, where they are. It's very important, I think, to bring back, if it's not too late, the notion of adequationist truth, the kind of truth you would like an alibi to tell in a law court if you were in trouble, falsely accused of something. That's what I mean by truth. Not some high-flown uh, notion like aletheic truth or pragmatic truth or whatever, but just this ordinary adequationist notion that serves us very well in legal systems and in just ordinary everyday life. And a bit of frankness from activists and an attempt to gain some clarity and to, to learn clarity of expression and clarity of analysis wouldn't be a bad thing either. And I'll say this again, and we don't hear this enough, I don't think, but the power of organised labour will turn out to be crucial in this matter. So that's roughly, I think, where we are at the moment. And I say it's a very brief look. And it's an impression, but we will try and get into the weeds, at least to some extent, and report back to you on that. Anyway, thank you for listening. Over and out. Make knowledge great again, and I hope that you're all having a really fine apocalypse.